0: morning. You okay? Welcome to Citadel Square. If you knew, my name is Steve. You guys missed the, uh, the news that Brandon shared with you in the first service, which is he got hit by a car when he was how old? Second grade. Second grade. So we like to put the fear of God in you as a church so that when you take seriously the fact that you don't want to get hit by a car on Meeting Street, we put Brandon in front of you. And Brandon, he's got it pretty well together. I mean, I appreciate, you know, you do pretty well for getting hit by a car in second grade. So let's give thanks to God for that. Uh, Well, hey, good morning, Uh, my name is Steve. I don't think I've ever been hit by a car, as far as I can remember. Uh, We are in a series, if you're new, we're in a series uh, in our church in the book of Revelation. There should be a Bible around you somewhere in one of the pews, a black one. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and grab it, read it, till the cover falls off, come back and get another one. Uh, We want to make sure that you're equipped in reading God's word. So that's our gift to you if you don't have one. If you do have one, turn in your Bibles to the very last book, to Revelation chapter 10. We ended last week looking at, uh, we really looked at demons. That was really all of chapter 9 in the book of Revelation. And we ended chapter 9 with something very sober, Uh, The reality that the people left on earth at this time would not give up worshiping idols. They would not give up worshiping demons. They would not repent of their murders, their thefts, their sorceries. That they refuse to turn, even though they have sufficient information about what's happening in their day. So you close chapter 9, and there's a weight that settles on your chest because... Uh, you know we still have, what, 9 minus 22 chapters minus 9. We still have 11 more chapters. Is that right? Thank you, 13. Somebody came up last week and they went, it's not 2 million, it's 200 million. So 0 for 2 on math with Steve on Sunday mornings. Uh, No big deal. Uh, Revelation chapter 10. So uh, Revelation 10 We're going to see here today opens up and it's going to move the program of God forward. If you've been with us through this series, you've seen the judgments of God are pretty severe, but the judgments of God up to this point in the seal and trumpet judgments have been severe and devastating, but limited that the fourth horseman had authority over a quarter of the people left on earth, that you had a third of the trees damaged uh, when you had the uh, trumpet seals begin. Last week when we saw the angels who were bound at the river Euphrates, they had authority over only a third of the earth. And up to this point, you've had a devastating uh, amount of people die, uh, upwards of probably four billion at this point. But what we're going to do in Revelation chapter 10 is recenter our attention on God. We've been looking at angels and the judgments and the Lamb moving things forward, but Revelation 10 is going to kind of take the themes that we've seen in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 and remind you of them. Because what's about to come in the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls. And the seven bowl judgments are going to be horrific. Uh, They're going to come in such rapid succession that you're not going to be able to live but hours because of the destruction that's going to rain down on earth. Uh, Last week, we talked about repentance. We talked about how important repentance was as a Christian, that it ought to characterize our life, that the tone of our heart before God should be continuing to repent and recognize the ways in which we failed to live up to God's standards. Well, as you move forward in this uh, spot in Revelation 10 and what's to follow, um, repentance every single time from this point forward will always be mentioned in the negative, it will always be mentioned as something that mankind refuses to do and will not do. It begins in nine, and it continues all the way through the remainder of the book. But Revelation 10 is an important chapter for a kind of one big reason. It's an important chapter because it focuses our minds on God, and it draws out a question that's a question that I'm sure you have asked. It's a question that if you have engaged with family members or neighbors or coworkers about God, man, evil, sin, the future things, that this question will come up. I want to start here in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 8 says this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. I'll read it one more time. That, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You ever experience that question? Where somebody asks you why on our planet are there stories like Hitler or the Emanuel Nine shooting? That during the midst of our hour or so together, there will be abuses and corruptions and sin and hardship, and devastating pain happen at some point throughout our planet. And sooner or later, when anybody thinks of spiritual things, they're gonna ask that question. When is God going to deal with evil? Why doesn't God deal with evil? And the better question is, why doesn't God deal with evil now? You ever ask that question? But that's a, that's a difficult question, isn't it? And for the Christian, when we read the book of Revelation, you'd better have Revelation chapter 10. Because Revelation chapter 10 is the moment where God says now. So you and I need the reality of the fact that God is going to judge, that Jesus will return. And there's coming a day where, as we'll see in this passage, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So that's what we're going to see here today in Revelation chapter 10. We're going to focus our eyes again on God and who he is. We've had our eyes on mankind. We've had our eyes on uh, angels. We've had our eyes on demons. But just like we started in Revelation chapter 4, we're going to come back to those big themes of God and his right to judge because of his character. All right? Let's look at this together. Let's pray ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word by which we can see things rightly. The Psalms say that the unfolding of your word gives light and that's what we pray for here this morning, that we would be a people characterized by understanding, that we would be a people characterized by true spiritual wisdom because of what we see in your word. We pray for confidence, we pray for understanding, we pray for your spirit to give light to our eyes. We pray, Father, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart might be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. We'll take a look here, Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel. We've seen mighty angels before in the book of Revelation. Mighty angels have called out before. Um, Mighty angels were mentioned uh, in Revelation chapter four that talked about and asked this question, actually in Revelation chapter five, who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, here's another mighty angel, and you're gonna see several themes about this angel. This angel is gonna be characterized by things that you'll see back in Revelation chapter four and characterized, really, by the glory of heaven. Look at what it says. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. The, angel, the uh, Psalms say that God rides on the clouds with a rainbow over his head. Now, when you and I think rainbow, what do we think of? Well, we think of Noah and we think of the flood, don't we? A rainbow was already mentioned in the throne room scene of Revelation chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 4, the emerald rainbow surrounded the throne. When you think of the rainbow having to do with uh, the flood in the book of Genesis, you think of two primary things. One is God's mercy, that it's a symbol for Noah and for all who will come from Noah to know that when God made a promise, he set his bow in the clouds. The picture is of God putting up his war bow so that for Noah and everybody who comes afterward, they don't have a rainstorm and go, oh man, it's coming again. So that God gives a testimony to his mercy that he never again will flood the earth. I'll never judge the earth in this way again. So it's a testament to God's mercy and his character. But it's also a testimony that gives uh, sobriety to our understanding of the rainbow. Why? Because the rainbow comes after the judgment that God, as the ruler of this planet, has the authority to judge. So you're gonna see both of those themes, a thankfulness for God and revealing his character and a sobriety about the fact that God has the authority and right to judge. So here comes this angel with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun. Whose face was like the sun in the book of Revelation thus far? Jesus, his face was like the sun. So this angel comes from heaven sharing or uh, participating somewhat in the glory of heaven as he returns and comes down to earth. His legs are like pillars of fire. Verse two, he had a little scroll open in his hand. Now it's little probably for this reason. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Is this a little angel or a big angel? It's a big one. It's a big puppy, right? This angel lands, as it were, on the planet with one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth, and he's holding probably a little bitty scroll in his hand. This scroll is open, probably not the scroll of Revelation chapter 5, although this scroll will have judgments upon it that John, in a minute here, will see how John interacts with that truth. But this angel shows up on the planet with a little bitty scroll with, uh, in effect, and a loud voice and a message that has to do with with the entire planet. The judgments of God have fallen on the earth and on the sea, right? On both places we've seen the judgment of God. So this angel shows up with a message that applies to the entire planet as to what is about to happen next. Verse three, he calls out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. Now, as he calls out, something or someone responds. Look at the remainder of verse three there. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, uh, this may be something that John's readers knew what it was, but there isn't any other mention in your whole Bible of what the seven thunders are. You remember up to this point in the book of Revelation, we saw the Lamb standing as if slain with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out throughout the earth, right? Isaiah 11 talks about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Jesus Christ, and it's a sevenfold description of the Spirit of God. It may be a similar idea here, only having to do with the voice of God, uh, you can read this in your own time, but you can go and read Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is a sevenfold description of the voice of God, that it, it breaks the cedars and, it up, and there's an upheaval in creation when God speaks. But whatever it is, the seven thunders don't just sound, the seven thunders speak. They communicate information to John. Take a look at 4, 10 verse 4. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Which means that the seven thunders communicate something to John that only John knows. Why is that important? Well, it seems that those who write scripture give us sufficient information about spiritual things, but they don't give us exhaustive information about spiritual things. We said this when we looked at Revelation chapter nine about angels and demons, that there's lots of information, biblically speaking, about angels and demons, but it's relatively shallow information. When Peter writes his epistles to us, he talks about the gospel message of, of God saving men and women from their sin as being something that angels long to look into and long to understand. That Peter, in a sentence, declares something about the internal motivations of angelic creatures, And just keeps on writing. In 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul is taken to heaven, in his heavenly experience, he says that he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So that when you get to the book of Revelation, and here's John getting ready to write what will come out of the seven trumpets, there's more about the book of Revelation than we are actually aware of. This characterizes much of what the New Testament writers give to us when they capture information about God and Jesus and about heavenly things, that God gives us sufficient information to respond, but he doesn't give us exhaustive information. You ever heard of Mark Twain? He wrote Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. He was a a writer, and he said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things in the Bible that I do understand that trouble me. That God gives us his word and we have essential information about God, essential information about the gospel, essential information about things we ought to believe and know and understand and cause us to give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done, to repent of our sin, to receive grace and forgiveness of sin and empowerment to live the lives that God wants us to live, but you don't have all the information. You okay with that? That there's more about God and Satan and demons and angels and spiritual things. We've looked at just the sheer numbers of angelic creatures being in the millions as things that we see dimly through a glass. So that be aware that when you read the book of Revelation, there's more that God will do during the tribulation period and beyond than we have information. John has it, but he's told to seal it up. It's probably similar to what God, uh, the angel tells Daniel at the end of Daniel's prophecy. At the end of Daniel's prophecy, uh, It said this, Daniel, uh, he said, go your way. This is Daniel 12, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Daniel's waiting for future revelation, probably what shows up in this book. So John is given information that he's not allowed to communicate. Look at verse five. And the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and forever. Have we heard that before in the book of Revelation? We heard it way back in Revelation chapter 4 about the eternality of God. That the one who sits on the throne lives forever and forever. And then it went on to talk about why God has the right And why God is worthy to be praised. And it's what the angel says again here. Look at verse 6. It swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. That God has full authority and right to judge the heavens, the seas, the earth. Because he's the creator. He's made it all. It's all his, and he has total right, authority, power, and sovereignty to be able to declare judgment when he wants. So here's this angel coming down from heaven, swearing to God who lives forever, and look at what he says. He says he swears to the one who lives forever, who made the earth, the sea, and the heavens, that there would be no more delay. Now, there have been delays in this book, haven't there? That the judgments of God have been surgical in their precision. They've been sequential as each seal is open and moves the story forward, that each sound of the trumpet moves the narrative along. But at this point, the angel, the angel raises his hand and swears to the one who sits on the throne that there is no more delay. But, verse seven, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Now, mystery in the Bible is not a riddle. It's not a Rubik's Cube, a thing that we just don't know how to figure out. A a a, uh, mystery in the New Testament has to do with something that you and I can't understand unless God reveals it. So there's some reality that we get to in the book of Revelation, some moment when the seventh trumpet is going to sound, that we're going to understand something that up to this point we have not been able to understand. And it's particularly tied to this idea of delay. Of what you and I, as New Testament Christians, are waiting for. Now, what happens When the trumpets sound. Keep your, are you there? You're there in Revelation 10. Just go down just a few verses to the middle of Revelation chapter 11 at the seventh trumpet. You have a heading for the seventh trumpet in your Bible right around verse 15? Here's the mystery that is fulfilled. Verse 15 of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. Haven't you been waiting for that? Isn't that the hope of your heart, Christian? That when the disciples come to Jesus in Acts chapter one, and they say, Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times, set by the Father's own authority, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now when you read your Bible, do you spend time in the prophets? Because the prophets, what this verse says here is that the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets, probably the Old Testament and New Testament gospel writers. That word announced means preached the good news. Well, what is the good news that the prophets in the Old Testament were hearing? As you read through Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Amos and all of these Old Testament prophets, there are these moments where the prophets gain a picture that's so dramatic, that's so wonderful about God ruling and reigning on the earth, that it totally captures their imagination. And what you and I are waiting for as New Testament Christians is for the ruler of the kings on earth, which is how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter one, to arise and to return. What's the mystery? The mystery is why is there a delay between his first coming and his second coming? Is Jesus back yet? Say no. He not oh, good. The first service wasn't sure. <laughs> I go, I said, that's why you come to church, to learn these biblical truths about the fact that Jesus has not returned yet. Jesus has not returned. Well, why hasn't he returned yet? We're waiting, and this gap of time that is, happened over the course of 2,000 plus years has been this mystery of the delay. Where that if Christ had returned 10 years ago, many of us may not have known and come to the reality of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the gospel, Right? that if Christ had returned 25 years ago, that many of us would not have known the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ for us. He announced it to his servants, the prophets. Now look at verse eight. Remember back in Revelation five, Revelation five, the angel invites John into the drama of redemption. And the angel asks John this question, who is able to open the seals? And nobody in heaven and on earth or under the earth is is able to open the seals or to look into it and it causes John to crumble and he weeps and the angel turns to him and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, John, again, is invited into the drama of this moment as he's commanded to do something kind of weird. Go walk up to the giant angel. Look at verse 8. And the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, It will be sweet as honey. There's a similar moment like this in your Bible. If you may have a cross-reference there that points you back to Ezekiel chapter 2. In Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel is given words of lamentation and mourning and woe on a little scroll and it's given to Ezekiel to eat and he's meant to go and to preach judgment to the hard-hearted people of Israel. And God says to Ezekiel, I've made your forehead like flint. Their forehead is hard, your forehead is hard. Take these truths and go and preach them. And John has a similar command that he's about to take upon himself here. Only the people that he is going to preach to are not the people of Israel. It's the unbelieving rebels on the planet. And John has two particular experiences when he receives the word of God. The first is that the word of God is sweet to him. So this is instructive for us. Is the truth of God sweet to you? Are you glad that you have knowledge of God and who he is revealed to us in his word? That the word of God is is consistently referred to as sweet like honey. In Psalm 119 and Psalm 19, both talk about that God's rules and statutes are sweeter to my taste than honeycomb. But we're in the book of Revelation, and the bowl judgments are about to come. And as John receives information about the horrifying judgments that are about to show up in the bowl judgments, it twists his stomach that he's made nauseous by the reality because he knows what is coming. Take note that this is how Christians live in this world. We live thankful for the fact that God has spoken in his word. But there are truths in this book that turn our hearts and our stomachs in sobriety because we know, like Hebrews says, that it is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here's John. Verse 10, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Look at verse 11. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples. John, you have more to write. Though we have sealed up what the seven thunders have said, we're not going to give you all of the information about all what is about to happen, but we're going to give you particular information And it's to a particular group of people. Look at the remainder of this verse. John writes and he gives us terms that we've seen before in this book. Prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages. Now we've seen that, right? People coming out of the great tribulation were people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, right? We saw those people arrive in earth. But now John adds a category of people. You see what it is? It's the very last word of Revelation 10, verse 11. It's the word kings. When you read the book of Revelation, kings refer to only two groups of people. Kings either refer to Jesus as the one true king, or it refers to those world powers and world world leaders who will not turn and bend the knee. There's only two camps. There's only two groups. That's what we've seen already, that there will be the mark of the beast coming up in a few chapters and we've already seen the mark of the lamb. And now what John is about to write is perhaps the most horrifying section of your Bible. So that when you ask the question, why doesn't God judge evil? And you read Revelation chapter 11 through Revelation chapter 18. You see perhaps the most devastating side of God in all the scriptures. That that's how serious God takes rebellion against him on his planet. So. This is the arising of the hero. This is the end of the movie, when the movie turns and evil is vanquished, and the king returns to lay claim to his planet Earth. This is is the chapter we need, right? This is the chapter that we need to remember that he is returning again. He will come to judge. There will be no rebellion. If you read, the two most common quoted psalms in your New Testament are Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Psalm 110 says that Jesus, when when he returns, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That he will obliterate all opposition. He's not, the last battle is like, that fast, because Jesus shows up and he goes, mm, dead. And everybody drops. It's not even a battle, because he lays claim to what is rightly, rightfully his. Now, remember, we live between his first coming and his second coming, Right? We live in this time that when you read your New Testament, you have all of these truths that describe who you are and describe what Jesus has done and what he has won for you and how he's conquered your sin and how your uh, life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, who is your life, then you will appear with him in glory. And there's all of these glorious truths that the New Testament writers give to us. But you still live, and I still live, in the delay, don't we? We still live in this mysterious time to where Christ has not finished what he's doing in the church age. And the question for you and I, when we read Revelation chapter 10, and we see the end of the story, is how well do you wait? Do you take the truths of the end times and apply them into your life now? Or do you live life waiting for the wrong thing? See, maybe you live life waiting for what you purchased on Amazon to arrive because you paid for Amazon Prime and it's supposed to be two-day shipping and you're still waiting at day five for this package that happens to still be delayed and we're so sorry. Well, why am I paying for Amazon forget it. Doesn't matter. That maybe you wait for things that are like summer vacation, or for you to get your degree, or for the kids to be finally out of the house, or for the time when you're going to be financially more freed up. No matter who you are, you wait in this life with anticipation, and we're always looking forward, aren't we? We're always looking forward to things that are going to be. And therefore, we live in light of the things that we hope to be. And this is not a small concept. It's all over the New Testament. I want to show you it just to close our time from 2 Peter chapter 3. So flip back a few books to 2 Peter chapter 3, and let me show you this. See, we all live life with forward looking hearts, forward yearning hearts. We all live life with anticipation for something that we believe will order our life right now. That when we parent our children, we can't tell them too many days in advance of things that we're going to do that are fun because they make the up the preceding days A constant conversation about how many days and hours until the thing that we're going to do. We like to surprise them the day of because that's good parenting. You don't want to give them too much hope. Just hope the day of. You can write that down. That's important parenting knowledge for you at some point later. But Peter has this idea. 2 Peter chapter three, he starts in 2 Peter three verse one, the first seven or so verses, and he talks about people who are called scoffers, Those who say that everything has happened the same since the days of our fathers. God's not coming back, God's not gonna judge. God, our lives don't matter here. Everything goes on the same. And they deny the fact that God is active in judgment, that God is actively softening and hardening people, that God is actively moving his purposes forward on his own timeline and on his own schedule. Isn't that frustrating? God doesn't check with you or me when he moves his plans forward. And then he says this, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Beloved, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God doesn't operate on our timetable. Eternal beings, 20 minutes or 20 years or 20 millennia, doesn't matter to God. That the very next thing on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture of his church, the return of Jesus Christ to judge. And we're meant to live with that kind of immediacy to our lives. Here, I'll show you what he goes on to say. Look at verse nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward who? You. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad that God hasn't returned to judge 25 years ago? Maybe you weren't alive then. I was born in 77. I'm sure glad God didn't show up to judge in 82. Amen? Some of you weren't alive in 82. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then all the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. You know what heavenly bodies is there? It's the word in the Greek for the basic elementary things. It's the ABCs. That God will burn up the molecules that are held together by the ionic and covalent bonds. say, Say chemistry right there. Somebody's nodding. They know what ionic and covalent bonds are. You can ask him later. This is important, this is good. A lot of people are going to lunch with you. God's gonna take everything and the word dissolved means to release. Entropy is going to take over. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works on it that are done on it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Isn't that interesting? That Peter doesn't say, it's gonna get better for you on Tuesday. Peter doesn't say, everything's gonna get better every single day and in every single way, and you're gonna get to live your best life now. Peter says, everything is gonna be set on fire and destroyed. Everything. Every place you watch sunsets, every hope that you have in your degree, every single plan for your career that is going on, every single future thing that you're looking to right now will one day ultimately be completely disintegrated and destroyed. Therefore, how are you living now? Well, that seems an odd contra- contrast, doesn't it? Wouldn't you expect Peter to say, well, it don't matter because everything's going to burn. But Peter rather says everything's gonna burn, therefore, order your life rightly now. Now, watch this. Watch what he says. This is fascinating. Look at the word he's gonna mention three different times. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Look at verse 12. How's verse 12 start? Waiting. That you and I are in the delay. What sort of lives ought you to live? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are, say it, (laughs) waiting. For what? We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Romans 8 talks about the creation longing to be set free from corruption. You may have a cross-reference here that says Revelation chapter 21, when Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. That the earth as it is will not get better. The earth as it is will ultimately and finally be unhinged, disintegrated, completely destroyed by fire, melted down to nothing, and then God will remake everything not tainted by sin, but characterized by full and complete righteousness. Hallelujah and amen. And that's what you're waiting for. Now, be honest. This week, did hope rise in your heart because you knew that God was going to burn everything? Yeah, mine either. I wasn't like, I'm so captured by this idea that God is going to completely destroy everything that I should be godly now. Rather, my hopes typically aren't that far. Right? They're they're weekly, monthly, even yearly hopes, but they don't go as far as that. And Peter puts your life in this delay between the coming of Christ and the burning up of all things and restoration. And he says, you should wait well. You should wait wisely. Now look at what he says in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting. Since you're waiting, how are you going to wait? What is your life characterized as you are waiting? Now, in the beginning of this chapter, he talks about scoffers. And the scoffers deny that God is going to come back. They deny that God is going to judge. They deny that God's going to hold anybody accountable for their deeds and wickedness. And Peter just says that the deeds on the earth will be exposed. We will see. When you get to the end of this book, the books will be opened, and men will be judged for what they have done. Paul says, on that day, the secrets of men will be judged by Christ Jesus. Jesus says, on that day, men will give an account for every word that the things I've done, the things I've said, and the things that nobody knows will all be exposed before God. So you can deny That it looks like evil's taking control and God's not judging and God's not doing anything and therefore, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Go and make the best life now. Now maybe that's not you, that you don't deny the truth of God's coming and future judgment and burning up of the earth and remaking it all according to righteousness. But something common that I see is that Christians do kind of one of two things, they'll look back And they'll go, there were good old days. They don't look forward to what God's going to do. They go, things are bad now, and I wish they'd go back that way. So that's a danger. Or the Christians generally live with a sense of despair. That they, well, I know he's coming, but I, I don't know. I mean, he's coming, probably coming back, but my life is really not that great now. And I guess I believe in Jesus, but I don't really know what he's going to do. I'm not sure what he's doing in my life, and I don't really know if I ought to live holy or not, but I'm glad he's close to the brokenhearted. Right? They don't look back, they just look around. And they go, nothing's good, everything's bad, Jesus is up there somewhere doing something, I guess. And the temptation when you read books like Revelation or the prophets is to make them merely spiritual. But we said this throughout the book of Revelation that spiritual things and physical things start to come together. And when Revelation chapter 11 says that the kingdoms of this world have begun the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, it means Jesus is gonna stand on the earth. Jesus is gonna redeem the planet. Jesus is gonna make all things new. Jesus is going to be here again. And it won't be a spiritual idea. He will be seen on this planet. So Peter gives us how we ought to live during the delay. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. To be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. God hasn't come back to judge. Just as there is oppression and heartache and pain and suffering happening on our planet, in our city, around the world at this point, God is also saving men and women from their sins made in the image of God to be redeemed and trophies of his grace for all time and forever into eternity. That God's plans have not been uh, delayed God has a purpose in this time. So therefore, church, be diligent. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Aren't you glad that's in your Bible? Aren't you glad that Peter goes, I'm not sure what Paul's talking about? That's encouraging to me. There are some things which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Don't live life during the delay being unstable. Come back to the truth of God's word that is able to give you stability in times that are a mystery. Let's be honest. We don't know all of what God's doing in 2021. You don't know all of what God's doing in your life right now. You don't know when Jesus is coming back, but you do know that you are meant to live a certain kind of life now. You are called to be diligent. You are called to be wise. You're called to have insight about true spiritual things, about the coming judgment, and about how you ought to order your life now. Verse 18 Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So let me ask you how are you stewarding the delay? Are, you, are, are there things about the grace of God that are capturing your attention and affection in 2021 that did not capture your attention and affection in 2020? Do you move through the books of the Bible amazed at the fact that God saves sinners, amazed at the fact that he has redeemed you and bought you back from the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of God's dear son. Is that amazing to you? Do those truths about God's grace and skepticism about your performance and joy about the fact that he died for you grab hold of your soul? Do you grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are there truths about Jesus Christ right now that are new and fresh to you? that are moving through the hallways of your heart, giving you life, and breath, and joy, and excitement, and peace, and changing the way that you speak, and repent, and act, and parent, and work, and get that degree. My heart for you, if you are a part of Citadel Square, is that whether you're here for 30 days or 30 years, that this would be a place where you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we as a church would behold the glory of God. Like Paul says, we talk about this in 2 Corinthians, beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed from one image of glory to the next. That's my heart for us. That you come and you grow to understand Jesus Christ better. That you steward this time of delay. Not the delay in this season where you're only here for a couple of years to get your degree. But the fact that we live between two advents. His coming the first time and his coming the second time. Let's not waste our time. Let's be diligent to be found by him in holiness and godliness and at peace, without spot or blemish. Don't waste your time, but grow. You with me? Because we know Revelation 10 is coming. We know he's coming back. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, it's used some of the same words that Peter has used here about waiting. Waiting. And he says that there's a servant. And the servant begins to be neglectful and he begins to get drunk and he begins to beat his fellow servants. Because he wasn't looking forward to the day that Christ was coming. And this is Paul, uh, Peter's point here. We know he's coming back. We know his return is imminent. And we as Christians are meant to live lives differently. That you can wait well as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need Revelation chapter 10. We need to be reminded of your grace and your kindness to us. We need to be reminded that this kingdom on this planet is against you. And we need to be uh, ordering our lives appropriately. I pray that for this church in this time and place that we would be diligent about our spiritual lives, that we would not be cavalier or apathetic about what you want to do in us, that we would live wisely between your first coming and your second coming, that you would give us grace, that you would give us friendships, that you would give us this church and an eagerness about our hearts to not waste our time. God, help us to live with urgency. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. May you give us leaders and teachers and those who would help us move toward maturity in these things. We give thanks for who you are, that you are the God who is due all glory, all power, all wisdom, all thanks, and all might. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.